Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to make you aware, if you weren't already, that the 7th Rule Podcast has organized an online Star Trek convention to fill the hole where STLV would have been this summer. It's called Virtual Trek Con, and it launches today, July the 15th, and it runs until the 20th. It's all available on YouTube. You don't even need a pass. It's all free. They've got guests like Nana Visitor, Tim Russ, Doug Jones, Michelle Hurd, Nichelle Nichols, Alexander Siddig, and many more Trek actors, writers, and artists talking about their experiences in the franchise, the science of Trek, Trek movie talk, and much more. If you want information, go to virtualtrekcon.com and click on How to Participate to find out about the two virtual stages that they've got going for this. And when the con is done, why not go to enterprisingindividuals.com and check out some of my past interviews with some of those same guests talking Trek and their contributions to it. We've got a great guest today on the show. I'm talking with Fred Love, who is a writer, a musician, and a contributor to Star Trek Adventures. That's the Star Trek role-playing game published by Modifius Games. They recently announced their Klingon Empire supplement book, which Fred contributed to. And it's scheduled to release this fall, but you can pre-order it now. I'll leave a link in the show notes where you can pick that up. I'll also mention quick that Fred is a game master himself, and he regularly runs Star Trek Adventures games. He's got a campaign running currently called Star Trek Explorer which he runs over Skype, and the video of those sessions are available on his YouTube channel. So you can go to youtube.com and search for Fred Love Star Trek, or I've got a link in the show notes if you want to see Star Trek Adventures in action. I had a lot of fun talking with Fred. He's a thoughtful guy, and he picked a great hour of Voyager for this episode, so I hope you enjoy it. It feels good to be back. That's it for now. Check out Virtual Trek Con this week. I'll talk to you again next week. And with that, let's get underway. Hailing Frequencies is open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and Harry Kim travels 70,000 light years across the galaxy, and a Vulcan children's choir is performing at the reception. Harry and the Kim Tones need a new booking agent. My guest on the show today is Fred Love. Fred is a freelance writer and RPG designer who has written for games such as Star Trek Adventures and Tiny Supers. He's also a singer-songwriter. His debut solo album, Lily of the Valley, is available on Spotify, Amazon, and downinthevalley.com. Fred, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to Aaron. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about... <laughs> Timeless, the sixth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager. Pity poor Harry Kim, a Starfleet cadet with unlimited potential, valedictorian of his academy class, editor of the school newspaper, first chair clarinet for the Juilliard Youth Symphony, a three-time Parisi Squares champion. And on his first assignment, he's catapulted into the Delta Quadrant to likely die of old age before ever returning home. 
Like many young people with promising futures, Harry could have given up when life turned out to be more complicated than he had been led to believe. But Harry grew up fast and realized his nascent potential to successfully bring the Voyager and her crew home again. Just don't expect him to get a promotion for it. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Fred, it's great to have you here. Uh, I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Wow. So, yeah, I would have to go back a long ways. I think I was probably in kindergarten when I was first exposed to Star Trek. This was in the early 90s, and Star Trek The Next Generation was really kind of hitting its stride and becoming a cultural phenomenon. Mm. And so my, my, I think my folks had introduced me to the original Star Wars trilogy first, and, and I watched those and really enjoyed them. And then I saw this thing on TV that kind of looked like Star Wars, had spaceships and aliens, <laughs> but then just a few minutes of watching it, I realized it was, it was very different and much more my speed and maybe more fully realized. Yeah. And it was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, and I've been basically watching uh, Star Trek ever since. I, I collected all the... Playmates action figures and toys and yeah. still have those uh, to this day. And uh, I've just been following the franchise. There's never been a point since then where I have been following the franchise pretty closely. I've been thinking a lot recently about, I mean, we don't always uh, talk about the W, Star W word on this show, but sometimes we do. And the franchise of Star Trek really owes a lot to Star Wars uh, simply because of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which, of course, would probably never have seen the light of day without the runaway success of Star Wars. Um, and that was sort of part of the problem of the reception of Star Star Trek, the motion picture, because Star Wars, of course, presents this, you know, bombastic sort of Western in space. And then TM, TMP comes along and people are like, what? <laughs> Just looking at the looking at the ship for, for 12 minutes and flying through a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the success of Star Wars has maybe been a gateway for a lot of folks like myself yeah. into more science fiction franchises but but yeah that star trek is definitely may, maybe a little more cerebral a little more methodically paced uh, maybe involving some bigger ideas and that's what's always i found that that's more appealing to my sensibilities yeah anyway yeah well it's good to hear that you're a success story then uh, in conversion uh, i've always wondered about like <laughs> the star wars universe and you know there's so much material that i'm sure that i'm missing something but i would like to see a more cerebral take you know a more thoughtful uh, take whenever they have, you know, it has elements of you know, Eastern philosophy and religion in it with the Force and Jedi and things like that. But just something that's a little less uh, blastery and a little more uh, moral quandaries, you know, and things aren't painted so black and white. But maybe that's just integral to to the appeal of Star Wars and knowing who the good guys are, knowing who the bad guys are. Yeah, you might be right. I would watch. I I mean, I, I still go to all the, the Star Wars films. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd watch uh, uh, some some Star Wars storytelling that, that maybe is a little uh, a little more like what you were talking about. Yeah. I think they sort of uh, dabbled with that a little bit in the uh, most recent uh, sequel trilogy. But uh, yeah, I didn't get too deep into it. I know that you've been writing for the Star Trek Adventures RPG by Modiphius. How'd you get started working with them? So I my involvement with Star Trek role-playing games goes all the way back to Last Unicorn Games. Oh, back when yeah. they had now you're talking my language, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, awesome. So uh, I, I think I was, I was in high school, uh, right around like 1999, 2000, early, the early 2000s when I first saw Star Trek The Next Generation role-playing game from Last Unicorn Games on a mm -hmm. shelf and bought it without really, without any real experience of, with role-playing games. Games, just kind of a vague idea of, of what a tabletop role-playing game is. And so I bought, I bought this book 
and got a couple of friends together in high school and ran a handful of sessions and just kind of fell in love with, with, with the idea that you could kind of run your own Star Trek series at the table with your friends yeah. through tabletop role playing. And so I followed the every iteration of, of Star Trek's tabletop role playing game since then. When Modiphius announced that they had the license several years ago and we're going to do a play test, I knew that I just desperately wanted to write for it. And so I just kind of looked up a, uh, an email address on the Modiphius website and sent them a, a blind email saying, you know, I've done some writing for tabletop role playing games. I know Star Trek really well. I would love it if there was an opportunity for me to contribute to this game. And they told me that they were looking for pitches for adventures. And so I sent them a pitch and to my surprise, they accepted. And so I've written uh, short scenarios for the first two scenario books. Uh, one's called These Are the Voyages. The other one's called uh, Strange New Worlds. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote some for the Delta Quadrant source book, which is more like setting material and, right. and very uh, drawing a lot on a, a lot of from Voyager episodes, as you might imagine. Sure. And hopefully there, there's more in the pipeline as well that I can't talk about quite yet. But the, the Star <laughs> sure. Trek Adventures line is, is going in some really exciting directions. That's great. I'm mean, writing for a Star Trek RPG has to be difficult because I mean it's a series that's been on for over 50 years. You know, there's eight shows and hundreds of hours of material. Do you ever have an idea and then you're like, "Uh, oh, no, uh they did that on Voyager." Or uh, no, I think they did this on an animated series episode. I, I don't think I can do that. You know, that that's an interesting question because I don't really shy away from I'm pretty pretty ruthless and just like stealing ideas from my favorite episodes <laughs> and, and Star Trek films sure. because I think if, if you want to play in a Star Trek tabletop role-playing game, the reason you want to do that is because you want to feel like you're taking part in an episode of Star Trek that you might see on screen. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm a big fan of putting my players in situations that are really similar to what they saw on the screen, but then allowing their characters to respond to those situations in ways that are more in keeping with, with how they would respond rather than, you know, the, the characters that they saw on television. Yeah. I really try to recreate the feeling of a Star Trek episode at the table. Yeah, and it's so great how, like, just the structure of Star Trek, you know, Captain's Log and the sort of uh, missions hour long on TV, but, you know, however long they are at the table, just give themselves really well to the role playing uh, structure. I remember that um, I played Last Unicorn, a Trek in the 90s, too, and I had a group of friends. Uh, that we played, a, we had about a six or seven year long campaign where we took these characters from Ensign all the way up to like captains and admirals. All the while, we've got two series of Trek on TV and it just felt like, oh yeah, this is, we're right in the middle of it. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I think that's, I think that's maybe the most rewarding part of role playing games is watching your characters kind of grow and develop uh, organically and, and the stories that you get to tell with your friends um, and building those stories at the table. Yeah, th that's awesome. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. I've had a couple writers for STA on the program and I myself have been trying to get a game going with some listeners. I know you've got a game that you're running currently, Star Trek Explorers, that you're streaming on YouTube and playing remotely or over the internet is a new frontier for RPGs. But of course, now in the time of COVID, it seems like a better idea than ever. Yeah, so my thinking was, obviously this is a stressful and difficult time for a lot of people. And so the idea of an original series era campaign played remotely with all of that optimism and hope that was such an, an integral part of the original series, it just seemed like the right time for that. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I'm two, two sessions into what I call Star Trek Explorers. It's just a, an original series era Star Trek Adventures game based on a Constitution class starship exploring the unknown. Um, and hopefully we've got plenty more uh, sessions uh, coming up. Um, but 
hey, you know, if you ever wanted to 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 play a game sometime, I'd love to run one for you, Aaron. Oh, if boy, we could, no if we could work out the schedules. <laughs> well, if people want to check out Star Trek Explorers, they can on YouTube uh, on your channel. Is that right? That's right. Yep, on my YouTube channel, I also do some kind of quick videos just about uh, some of the stuff that I've written for Star Trek Adventures. And I'm just trying to uh, populate more and more content on that YouTube channel and sure. let people know that Star Trek Adventures is is a great option for getting scratching your Star Trek itch. Uh, and and it's a great way to tell your own stories in the final frontier. Absolutely. I'd imagine that as a musician and somebody who performs publicly, you're doubly affected by social distancing and the, the canceling of events and gatherings. I, I'm lucky in the regard that the, my music has always just kind of been a side hustle. I've got a full-time job at Iowa State University. Mm. And so I'm, I'm lucky that my job allows me the flexibility. I'm working from home right now. Uh, most people at the university are. So I, I'm yeah. still, uh, I've, my day job is going just fine. But, but yeah, that side hustle is basically... Um, kind of down to the dumps. There's, there's no, I don't have any gigs scheduled until like August and, and who knows if those will even happen. So very yeah. tough time for, for creative people whose livelihoods depend on touring and live performance. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, we're all hoping that everything will sort of bounce back and even see a resurgence uh, and increase in people uh, appreciating live events and seeing their favorite bands and acts. I know I'm um, personally, and I'm not exactly sure why uh, I've always been a Bob Dylan fan although I haven't listened to him regularly in a few years. But for some reason, recently, before I go to bed every night, I've been spinning up some Bob Dylan albums. And just for some reason, it feels like the right kind of music for what's happening right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, too. And I'm, I'm finding that it's just really comforting to go back and listen to some of those albums that really mean a lot to me, but maybe I haven't listened to them in a long time. R right now, during the difficult time that we're in, it's just nice to have to hear a comforting voice, a familiar voice, uh, and get a, get a little comfort that way. Yeah. Where can people go to find out more about your music? Uh, my, um, my music website is fredlove, F-R-E-D-L-O-V-E dot info. And you can find um, some videos and some, some recordings from my album and my gig schedule. Uh, like I said earlier, there isn't a whole lot on the gig schedule right now, but hopefully yeah. that'll change in the months ahead. Why did you choose this specific episode, Timeless, to discuss today? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It was just kind of a front of mind when I was invited to be on the podcast. I just watched it recently and it's among my favorite Voyager episodes. Mm -hmm. I think it does a great job of balancing the two different timelines that the story takes place in. Mm -hmm. It also just felt like, um, kind of emblematic of, of Brandon Braga style storytelling with, with the time element. It, it felt like a, just a really good good example of Star Trek storytelling from the time period in which it was produced. Yeah, it's kind of a time travel episode without time travel. It's really only, you know, information like the message that Harry sends that that is the time traveling thing. And so it's unique yes. in that way. We've been talking a lot about Voyager on the show this year, and we've been talking about how it was sort of a return to quote unquote regular Star Trek after the narrative departures of DS9. I mean, sure, you've got this baked in premise that they're always trying to get home. But setting that aside, you know, they're just another Starfleet vessel doing what they do from week to week, exploring, being diplomatic diplomatic, you know, seeking out at all. And in a lot of ways, they both refined and innovated the regular formula of a TOS or a TNG. 
I think, both in terms of storytelling and in subject matter. Matter Voyager got really good at at starting stories in medias res, you know, just picking up in the middle of a crisis or scenario, uh, doing away with a lot of the, you know, captain's log, here we are, and then we find ourselves in a predicament. Um, this episode is a great example of that. Um, in the Flesh is an episode that happens uh, one or two episodes back from this, which is another one where it just picks up and it's like, where are we? What's going on? And they trust their audience at this point. Just, they'll get it. They'll sort of catch up to where we are. Yep, a- absolutely. Um I, I would say, you know, the, the, to me, I see kind of a lineage from uh, this episode, Timeless, that maybe stretches all the way back to like cause and effect in the next generation. Mm. That was the one with Kelsey Grammer, where they kind of repeat, they're in like a time loop and they they repeat stuff over and over. And that was another story that I think Bran and Bragg had a lot to do with shaping. And to me, there, there's kind of like a, this is another episode in, in that sort of series of these sort of high concept tiny wimey kind of stories. <laughs> yeah, right. And Voyager did a lot to to expand the world of the 24th century and the Federation. Even though they were cut off from the Alpha Quadrant, we still got a lot of episodes that explored both um, specific character foibles uh, as well as broader issues like religion and the rights of artificial life and the development and application of new technologies, diplomacy, the limits of the Prime Directive. Like they continued that tradition even on this show with this strange premise where we have to just get home. Yeah, I agree 100 And, you know, it's a lot like writing a Star Trek RPG when you're writing a series that's coming uh, 30 years after other Star Trek stories. It's got to be hard to keep it fresh. And I think Voyager did really good work in taking a lot of premises that had showed up previously on TOS or TNG and putting a new spin on them. You know, you mentioned cause and effect before. I think this episode is in a lot of ways kind of Voyager's Yesterday's Enterprise. Uh, But they found a way to retell a similar story uh, to Yesterday's Enterprise, but make it more personal and make it sort of centered on the life of a specific character. Yeah. In this case, I think you're probably talking about Harry Kim, which is an interesting choice to me um, because Harry is as as nice a guy as he is. I've always thought of him as a fairly bland character. I would never say (laughs) that Harry Kim is one of my favorite Star Trek characters. So they kind of give him a twist in this episode where they they show him in the future timeline where he's living with all this regret. He's isolated and basically obsessed with with correcting this big error that he committed in the past. So he's a very different character in the future timeline than, than the character that we know from the first you know, four, four odd years of, of the series. And that contrast uh, is actually really interesting. I think um, I, I found the future Harry Kim more interesting than the, the present time frame. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've swapped Harry Kim's before. Maybe we could bring future Harry Kim back to Voyager and just go with that. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, have you been watching Star Trek Picard? Yes, I have. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they mention uh, in this episode that they got this, uh, you know, this Borg transponder or temporal transceiver or whatever it was from a crashed Borg cube in the beta quadrant. And of course, it's all retroactive continuity. But I wonder if that refers to uh, to the artifact uh, in their timeline, uh, the, the crashed uh, cube that we see in uh, Star Trek Picard. Yeah, I think that's a, a total possibility in my head canon. That's absolutely where that <laughs> transceiver came from, where that stolen Borg technology came from. They said, yeah, there, there was a, a, a some kind of Borg cube uh, in the Beta Quadrant, and they were able to steal Borg technology that allowed them to transmit their message back to Seven of Nine in, in the yeah. past. We found it on this planet where everybody had gold skin and they were playing hacky sack all day. It seemed like a nice place. 
Yeah. Well, we're talking the Voyager episode, Timeless, the sixth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager. It first aired on the 18th of November in 1998. The teleplay was by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski, who we have talked about many times previously on the show. Uh, suffice it to say that they're both writer-producers who were heavily involved in Voyager and the Trek franchise. The story is by Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, and Joe Minoski. And of course, Rick Berman served as the executive producer on TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise, as well as co-creating DS9 Voyager and Enterprise. It was directed by LeVar Burton. That's a familiar name. We'll talk more about him in a little bit. The in-universe date, the star date is 52143.6. I should also mention that the Borg time index for this episode is 9.43852. And of course, we have a future timeline in this episode. No star date given, but the calendar year is 2390. And your assignment, Fred, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Timeless. Okay, 25 words. Jeez. Um, uh, a disillusioned Harry Kim in the year 2390 sends a message back in time to save Voyager. Perfect. That would be my sum- my one-sentence summary. Yeah, that's a good blurb, yeah. Most writers uh, on the show usually go into like a full-on pitch. They're like, all right, we're in 2390. <laughs> There's an ice planet. <laughs> Two men beam down. It's like, all right, you're, you're already through the 25 words here. <laughs> Here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. Many episodes of Star Trek or any TV show often start with a singular idea or an image, and the same is true of Timeless. The image of Voyager buried under ice came to Brandon Braga, and he worked with writer Joe Minoski and writer and story editor Brian Fuller to develop the idea. While developing the script, Braga and Minoski sought to avoid the usual twists and turns of typical time travel stories, keeping the action firmly in two separate time frames with only Harry's messages traveling back to the past. Minoski and Braga provided a great deal of detail to some aspects of the script, even specifying how much ice the ship should be seen under in the episode's opening. They also worked to make the episode's teaser nearly dialogue-free. Other aspects of the script were less outlined. Their sequence for Voyager's crash was just half a page, according to Minoski, and it would be up to the visual effects team to give the ship an impressive and tragic death. In realizing the shot of Voyager encased in ice, the visual effects team struggled with how to portray it conceptually, and they produced a number of sketches of the ship, both partially encased and sticking out of a glacier, but Braga was insistent on his vision of the ship being submerged, and the final effect was achieved through the use of a digital matte painting. Voyager's crash landing was achieved with both digital and practical effects. The sequence was attempted fully digitally, but the particle effects depicting the snow weren't up to the show's high standards. Standards. The sequence was finally completed with a CGI Voyager and real baking soda standing in for snow. And that reminds me of um, if you watch a documentary about the making of, again, a lot of Star Wars in this episode, uh, The Phantom Menace. Uh, when you see Naboo, there's this great shot of the palace, which is up on this plateau, you know, with waterfalls. And apparently the waterfalls were made with sand, with like white uh, sand, like the kind of sand that you have on a beach or like in an you know, old time ashtray. They would just run that through and then slow it down and then comp that into this you know, beautiful matte painting they had of the Naboo Palace. It was interesting that you mentioned that there was uh, baking powder. Is that what you said baking, it was? That baking was the, soda, yeah. Baking soda that was uses the snow or the ice on, on the set. I, I remember the last time I watched it just a couple of weeks ago and I was thinking, man, I would hate to be the person that had to vacuum and clean up all those sets after they got done filming. Yeah. It was just all in a lot of ways, you know, Voyager has been through quite a lot, you know, in its uh, life on the series and uh, probably one of the easiest 
uh, but also uh, somewhat uh, difficult to clean up ways to change the set is to do that that freezing effect. Um, if you look at like old TOS episodes like um, like the Naked Time, uh, they must just spray every, everything down with like a white foam or something like that, you know, so it's, it looks all fuzzy. And then you can just like chisel it off, I suppose, but it would still take a little time. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> Everybody was fairly happy with the completed episode when it aired. Minoski praised the episode's imagery. Berman credited it as one of his favorite for the series and the entire run. Braga called it a perfect episode, and Fuller said that it hit on all cylinders. Uh, this episode is the first Voyager episode to feature a Galaxy-class starship in the form of the USS Challenger. The Challenger's registry number was NC. C71099, and it's a tribute to the Space Shuttle Challenger, whose designation was OV-099. Timeless depicts the eighth time, not counting the premiere, that the Voyager crew has had a solid chance of getting home and has missed out. It's also the third time on the show that the ship is destroyed. It's the sixth time that Janeway dies in the series, and it's the third time that we see Harry Kim die as well. And of course, it's worth pointing out that this episode has many parallels to the series finale, Endgame, in which a character from the future attempts to alter Voyager's past. Both episodes hinge on the use of Borg technology. Let's talk about the guest stars in this episode, and there's only two. Christine Harnos appears as Tessa Omond. Harnos appeared in a number of films and TV shows in the 1990s, and she had a recurring role as Jennifer Green, the ex-wife of Dr. Mark Green on the series ER. And of course, in addition to directing the episode, LeVar Burton reprises his role as Jordy LaForge, now a captain and the commander of the Challenger in this future. Burton directed 29 episodes in total of the four Berman Trek series, and Brandon Braga specifically requested Burton as the director of this episode, and it was late in the process of writing the script that he also asked Burton to reprise his role as LaForge in the episode. LeVar Burton found the production of the episode to be somewhat challenging, uh, specifically in having to shoot the frozen future Voyager and having the sets quickly redressed to then again look normal for the other timeline. And this is the 100th episode of Star Trek Voyager, which is, of course, a milestone for the series. The production threw a set party for the cast and crew, which was also attended by past writers and cast members of the show. And I think it's cool. The party in the beginning of the episode where they're celebrating Voyager's new warp drive um, and it being christened, I think, parallels that that celebration of it being 100 episodes. Yeah, I think that was a really nice touch. And uh, I, my one of my absolute favorite parts of this episode is, is during that celebration scene when Seven of Nine has a single glass of champagne and can't <laughs> hold her alcohol, and the doctor has to has to escort her out of engineering, and she keeps saying, "We are as one. Right. We are as one." Yeah. I, I love this scene. I love that. I, I laugh out loud at that every single time I watch it. <laughs> I think that's it. a great example of um, Seven of Nine, who often comes off as the this, this sort of alien and cold character, but they found ways to make her, uh, to give her a sense of, of warmth and, and family with the crew, even when she was oftentimes an outsider. And that's one of my favorite moments for Seven. Yeah, her getting white girl wasted on champagne. Uh, she, uh, <laughs> I think it, there's a couple mentions like later in the series where I think she becomes kind of abstemious after that because she's offered, you know, alcohol. She's like, eh, it's not, it's not for me. <laughs> Um, she learned her lesson. Yeah, she learned her lesson fast. Uh, let's talk about the episode itself. And specifically, I want to talk about the character of Harry Kim. Uh, you mentioned before that you wouldn't describe him as your favorite character. But what what's your overall impression? Um, you know, good enough? Uh, could they have done better with Harry Kim? Um, they should have never replaced him when he got sucked out of that airlock. What, what do you think about Harry Kim? Well, 
yeah, like, like I said earlier, the, the, uh, when I look at Voyager's cast, I, I think that there's some r- real highlights in Seven of Nine and Bolana, um, the Doctor. Uh, you know, I think those are great characters that really belong in the pantheon of, of great Star Trek characters. Yeah. Harry Kim would not would not be on that list, and I don't think <laughs> no. it was the fault of Garrett Wang, the actor, or anything. I think they just they they didn't really know how to develop him much beyond this sort of bright eyed, dedicated, competent ensign. Yeah. You know, I, I think there, there's some great moments between Harry and Janeway over the course of the series where she takes on kind of a mentor, maybe even like a motherly kind of role for, for this young ensign. Um, but he just kind of comes off as, as kind of bland and eager to please, which to me seems kind of cloying. So no, I would definitely not, definitely not describe Harry Kim as a favorite character of mine. Although this is, I think this would probably be his high point in in the series. in in my opinion, Hmm, interesting. I think it's it's too bad because, of course, um, and I, I think with the advent of CBS Trek, um, they're willing to sort of challenge more this idea of uh, the, the utopia that we see in the Federation not being perfect necessarily. Uh, and not just politically, like being able to show more flawed characters. But I think that he, it's a missed opportunity because he is somebody who comes with all the gifts. Like he really should be like when you hear that, you know, like Will Riker was the head of his class and he's being groomed, you know, to be the best captain in Starfleet. Um, he he is that and he is, you know, an excellent officer. And, and we see that. But having somebody like Harry who has all this potential and then is thrown into this horrible situation in the way that it sort of subverts what he thought he was going to get out of his life and yet having to yet rise to the challenge and, you know, do something kind of different. Like in a lot of ways, I think of him as uh, Wesley Crusher done right or at least done better. Like he, they're both, the, uh, you know, these kind of wunderkind characters. And Harry Kim's like, he's potentially like dislikable, but he's not as like a crazy pretentious like Wesley. I think they could have did a good job of making him a little bit precocious, but he embodies for me the idea of that, like perfect Starfleet cadet or young officer. You know, he's a genius. He's packed with science and training, um, but he immediately learns that book learning and potential aren't going to be enough to survive what he gets into. And where Wesley experiences disappointments and challenges, and eventually he just says, peace out. And he leaves Starfleet and goes with the traveler uh, Harry sticks with it and he becomes more and more seasoned as the as the series goes on. Um, but to be fair, he didn't have much choice except stay on Voyager, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting comparison you make with Wesley Crusher, who I think does come off as standoffish and, and unlikable early on in <laughs> yeah. the next generation. And, yeah. and I would not say that that is the case with Harry Kim. I think he's he's just he's perfectly likable. Yeah. Uh, he's a perfectly competent officer and he makes friends and um I think Garrett Wang had good stage presence. Um, they, they just never really had a whole lot of great ideas to to take his character, I guess, over over the course of the show. And and I really like the idea that you mentioned that he you know had this he had this plan for this this great trajectory in a Starfleet career that is almost immediately interrupted by this this wild and crazy detour into the Delta Quadrant that could totally derail his career aspirations. And maybe exploring that would have been pretty interesting to, to see this this guy who who has dreams of a career in Starfleet try to come to terms with the fact that he might never get off this ship, you know? Yeah. And to really explore that and develop that, you really have to sort of track that from at year to year and season to season. And Star Trek 
especially at this time, exists at a weird place in TV storytelling because you know, every new show or successive plot is based on some pre-existing element in the universe. But when it comes to the individual stories and characters, when they're writing weekly scripts, they're essentially just going with the weekly reset. You know, an episode starts... And it really doesn't matter all that much what happened last week. And DS9 did a lot, I think against the wishes of the of the people of the in charge, did a lot to bring serial storytelling and long-term character development to Trek. But the characterization on Voyager, it's it's often kind of inconsistent. Um, but that said, you know, Harry comes a long way from needing his clarinet and his sleep mask to, you know, being an important part of the crew, building warp cores <laughs> and such. But I know yeah, I, he, I'm sure he probably he probably said, uh, yes, mom. I mean, yes, ma'am, like a couple of times before uh, we got everything straight. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, he's mostly just Ensign Harry Kim. Um, as the series goes on, I think it's like the wacky episodes where we really get to explore his character the most. You know, episodes like uh, The Killing Game, where everybody is having this, you know, World War, World War II fantasy and he's just getting kicked around by Herogens and having to like survive on his own. Or yeah. seeing him as a as an older uh, captain in Endgame, or you know, or this episode, Timeless. It's like it's almost like we have to make him not Harry Kim to really explore new facets of Harry Kim. Yep, and, and I think that can be that's a perfectly like good move to uh, contrast what we know about a character with these other sort of alternate reality versions of that character, and it can tell us something about the character that we know and love. But in this case, um, I I worry that the the character of Harry Kim, he, he's more interesting in the alternate realities. And then when we come back to, to the real Harry Kim that we know and love, we think, oh, maybe, maybe it would have been more interesting if, if we would have gotten to know that other version of him better. <laughs> I don't want to be interesting. I just want to play my clarinet. Come on. <laughs> uh, play some Parisi squares. Uh, the writers really made a point of trying to feature uh, underserved characters in the fifth season. And I think Timeless was their play at making... Harry, a more complicated hero and giving him layers. And Garrett Wang asked uh, Brandon Braga about how he should portray this older Harry. What would he be like? Uh, and he asked if there was like a pop culture character he could look to. And Braga suggested um, Mel Gibson's character from Lethal Weapon, Martin Riggs, which I don't exactly see in his performance. <laughs> but I think that it was probably more about the idea of uh, this man who had lost everything and he just really didn't care at this point about anything except in this case you know saving the crew in the past and you get flashes of his anger in the episode i also like how he just doesn't have the only thing he cares about is fixing this problem and so the doctor is trying to gently find out the relationship between chakotay and and uh, tessa and he's like they're having sex All right, can we move yep. on <laughs> yep. The, the only you know motivation for this character now is that he wants to correct this grave mistake that he made. And I don't think he really worries about the consequences, both for those around him and for himself. I think on, on this this one last mission, you know, if, if he dies in the course of this mission, he is perfectly willing to to accept that kind of sacrifice. Yeah. That, and that's a dark that's a dark place to go with a character, um, especially a character who, you know, just last episode we saw doing Harry Kim stuff and just being Harry Kim. Yep, it is. It's a really sharp contrast. And even in Garrett Wang's portrayal, there's a certain gravelly quality to his voice in the future timeline. Yeah. Um, the, the way he carries himself, it, it is a, a very different contrast for for the Harry Kim that we've gotten to know and love. In this like bright utopian future of Star Trek, I think that it, at least in the past, has been probably difficult for the writers to really make their characters 
um, dirty and kind of ding them up a little bit. You know, they all have to be these kind of paragons. You know, they come from the amazing Federation and Starfleet, which is the best of the best. And what I like in this episode and what I really would have liked more of in the series is the idea of, you know, you've got Harry who's he's brilliant. He's been told he's brilliant. You know, he was sort of pampered by his parents and he designs this quantum slipstream stream drive, which is the answer to all their problems. Because of course he does. He's Harry Kim. You know, he's three-time Parisi Squares champion. And he's told by Tom I'm like, I don't think this is going to work. And he says, look, look, we'll fix this. I'll send you the adjustments. It's going to be fine. And they're not. Everybody dies except for him and Chakotay. And it nearly destroys him. He spends 15 years obsessed with fixing this problem. It's like the one answer he got wrong on the SATs. You know, if he could just go back in time and like get a perfect score. And Chakotay, I mean, Chakotay is not happy about what happened, but he's still Chakotay. He's got a new girlfriend. We get the idea he's got some kind of life. But you get the idea that Harry just can't move on from this. He can't take the, he can't even take the idea that he was wrong. And I think that that's really accurate for somebody who is used to being called exceptional, you know, being the best uh, and being right and finding themselves just unarguably wrong in, in this case. Yeah. And I think there's another parallel to another Star Trek character to be made here in uh, Ben Sisko at the very start of Deep Space Nine mm. when the wormhole aliens tell him you exist here referring to the the moment in time where he suffered this great tragedy and lost his wife that oh, he never yeah. really moved on beyond that and i think the future version of harry kim is in a, that same situation he's he exists in that moment where he feels like he was responsible for the destruction of voyager and the death of, of all of his crewmates yeah if he went into the uh, wormhole he would just be in that shuttle with chakotay forever just right after they've yep. come out of the slipstream yeah Exactly. I, I also think that Harry Kim would be a terror on Reddit. He'd be the guy going 15 replies deep with multi-paragraph responses to some minor disagreement that he had with somebody. He just have to <laughs> yeah. be right. It's funny because at, at the end of the episode, uh, our our Harry, young Harry, he still doesn't know what went, what went wrong. Um, and when we see him in the mess hall late at night and he's still pouring over like this data trying to figure it out. And then he gets that message from himself in the future saying basically – you know, hey, it's me or it's you, and I fixed it. And it's funny because I don't, I don't, wouldn't call it a misstep necessarily, but the message could or arguably should have been, hey, uh, you know, even we make mistakes sometimes. You know, don't be arrogant because look what can happen. But instead, the message is more like, see, we got it right eventually. Of course, we did. We're Harry Kim. I agree with you completely on that point. When the last time I watched the episode i kind of thought about that last scene where harry watches his future self give him this this quick message and it's like what exactly were the tri- the writers trying to communicate here and i'm not sure i could come up with a really clear answer to that question i'm not sure what they were what the lesson was for for harry kim yeah. from that message it's weird too because you know just thinking about the parallel to like yesterday's enterprise you know, yesterday's Enterprise, once they send the Enterprise C back and they fix everything, we flash back to regular Enterprise D and they're like, huh, it was a weird blip on the scanner. And they never know what Shooter McGavin and everybody else went through, you know, on the Enterprise C. Like it's it's the, like this dramatic irony. And in this, they specifically they could have just Janeway says, oh, we've got a guardian angel. Like it was just some weird transmission that Seven got. They could have left it there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they they pointedly decided to send this message for some reason but the message is like huh okay not sure that was a a real moral to the story but okay maybe harry yep. maybe it's just harry seeing i don't yeah i don't know maybe it's harry just seeing himself in the future or seeing a more 
you know, haggard version of himself in the future and knowing that, you know, things are, there's, there's real lives at stake here. You know, I guess if, if I were writing that scene, I probably would have reinforced the idea that Harry on Voyager, even though he's, he's far away from his parents and far away from the Starfleet career that he envisioned, he is with a family. And so maybe that future version of the character could have been like, Hey, you're surrounded by family where you are. And I don't want you to lose sight of that because without that, things can get pretty dark. You know, yeah. something along those lines, I think might've put more of a, uh, a, a closing thought on the episode. Yeah. I, 15 years later, I've got nothing. I'm in, I'm in silver snow pants and I'm miserable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just got these snow pants and she's <laughs> girlfriend. So cherish what you've got on Voyager. Yeah. I think Garrett Wang got something of a raw deal in working on the series. And I don't just mean Harry never getting promoted. Um, Harry got some cool storylines, but the character, for the most part, always was still that same ensign. And Wang himself has talked about some of his frustrations with the series. You know, he was the first and I think only cast member to be turned down for a directing job on the franchise. Uh, he went to the producers and asked for an episode to direct, like many cast members before him had, and he was flatly turned down. And that could have been a career turning point for him. Many track actors are now primarily TV directors post-Trek, like Jonathan Frakes and Roxanne Dawson, Robert Duncan McNeil. Sure. I mean, who's to say he may or may not have found success as a director, but he didn't even get a chance to try. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, why, why would he not be given the opportunity? I have no, you know? yeah, I, maybe his pitch wasn't good. I, I don't really know. And, you know, when the fourth season was rolling around and they were adding seven of nine to the cast, they were considering, you know, not just uh, having Kess leave the show, they were looking at Harry Kim, too. And it was just a quirk of fate that he had been featured in, I think, People Magazine's, like, 50 Sexiest People or something like that that year. And so the powers that be were like, all right, we'll keep him. We'll let Jennifer Lean go. So we might have had a Harry Kim-less uh, second half of the series. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's yeah. He thank his good looks for for that. Uh, it's a time. He's like a fucking guy. Yeah, what a no, wonderful he absolutely uh, bone is. structure in space, jawline. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a time travel episode, kind of. As I mentioned, uh, it's only information that time travels, but it brings up a moral question that I always think applies when you're dealing with alternate timelines and changing the past and uh, time travel stories and Trek and other media. And what's interesting is that this episode actually addresses that question. You know, we have Jordy LaForge himself say, stop wrestling around with time. You know, it's too bad what happened, but you're going to erase everything that everybody's done or accomplished in 15 years. And that's not your call to make, ultimately. Yeah, and, and even uh, Captain Janeway at the very end, when she's talking to Harry Kim in, in our current timeline, she tells him, don't even try to make sense of these time paradoxes, <laughs> right. which, which I have to think is probably the writers telling all of the, the fans like, hey, don't don't there's no need to pick this apart. That's not the point of the story. Yeah. You know, you're thinking too hard about it. And, and so I, I actually really like that little bit of dialogue because in the end, this is fiction and they're, they're trying to tell us a really entertaining story. And I think they succeeded here. So let's not think too hard about the mechanics of the time travel. That's not the point. It's hilarious when you consider what, you know, she ends up doing in the finale of Voyager, you know, which is like she goes from like, eh, don't worry about time travel. to Like we have to time travel. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of ways to tell time travel stories 
but I, historically, I've thought a lot about this. Historically, I think they usually break down to one of two schools. One, there's the back to the future style of time travel story. You know, you change something in the past. It changes the future. You know, you disappear from the photograph or you have a nicer truck when you come back to the future. Uh, and number two, there's the more deterministic form of time travel story where any change you make uh, was made in the past. So anything you do is just going to bring about that event that already exists, uh, you know, in the past, it's the time writer example, you know, you are your own grandpa, but there's yep. another option, something that I think media like comic books have been doing for years. And that's one that's been, uh, it's also been recently popularized by movies like Avengers Endgame, which says that, yes, you can change things and change the future, but also everything that has happened has already happened. So you can go to a new shiny future but it's an alternate timeline and whatever thing you're trying to change has still happened somewhere. Um, it's, this is a nerdy reference, but it's like in days of future past in the X-Men comics, you know, Kate pride goes back in time and changes what happened to lead to her dystopia. But when she gets back to her time, still a dystopia, she's just created a timeline where that never happened. Yep. Yep. And I'm glad you made the X-Men reference. I'm yeah, well, a huge, yeah. uh, huge X-Men <laughs> fan. Huge Chris Claremont era fan too. Yeah. And Star Trek seems to like to play it both ways with time travel stories. You know, you got something like the DS9 episode Times Orphan where, you, you know, adult Molly saves child Molly, which wipes her out of existence. And it's a total paradox. But you've also got Times Arrow from TNG where they find Data's head in a cave and they're like, how did that get there? But then at the end of the episode, he's going to be wearing that head like they're they're going to go through the events that lead to that happening. And then you've got Star Trek 2009, the film where they explicitly say that they're, they're creating an alternate right, timeline. Right, right. What do you yep. if you had to speculate, what do you think is going on in pop culture that we're more willing to sort of look at it in that way? It isn't just we've got to change something. Oh, thank God we restored things to the to the normal. Instead, we're like, no, if there's there are splintering timelines and such yeah boy that's a really good question that i hadn't really thought a lot about uh, my guess is maybe it's got something to do with the fact that all of these big pop culture is just crazy about these huge intellectual properties you know whether it's comic books or star wars or star trek or whatever it is these big universes where people have been telling stories in these universes going back decades and it's really hard to keep track of all of that canon all of those events and characters and things and so you almost have to come up with a system where you can kind of compartmentalize it and pick and choose what stays part of the canon and what silly things we can kind of leave out yeah. and what's immaterial. And so maybe time travel is a way to to kind of reset the clock. And, you know, we like these elements from the past, but we're going to forget some of these other elements so we can kind of package what we like all together into a, into a, a new film, a new rebooted, rebooted film that people will still recognize as, as part of this, this bigger continuity. Yeah. It is a little confusing though, still like, I'm not exactly sure how the time travel works because they send a message back, but it's like the wrong message. And I think to keep the episode, you know, the, the length that we have, we have to have Harry get it wrong once. Uh, and also it affords us the opportunity to actually see Voyager then crash. But yes. then he sends like the new message, which is basically just shut it, shut it down, shut it all down. Uh, does he send, does that arrive before or does it arrive, you know, does it overwrite the message that was already sent? Is there a time there's now there's two timelines where Voyager crashed or was that just the timeline that they're in? Yeah, I guess my understanding of that was Harry could keep sending messages back. Yeah. The doctor says like the past isn't going anywhere. Right. 
but the 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 kind of the the countdown clock that he was having to deal with was the fact that the challenger was breathing down their neck. Sure, sure. Um, so he only had he only had a certain number of opportunities to get that message back, and and so I guess he got one do over. He had enough time and, and enough power for one do over. Yeah, and the, of course the doctor um, who at first is reluctant ends up uh, sort of sacrificing himself for the cause. I thought that that was kind of cool. Oh uh, yeah, I thought that was a really lovely moment. Yeah, I thought the doctor's not knowing if he'll ever be reactivated, but saying it's been a pleasure. You know, uh, basically, for all he knows. He's sacrificing his life for this harebrained scheme. Yeah. <laughs> he does it because he loves uh, Chicote and Harry and the rest of the, the Voyager crew, and he's willing to make that kind of sacrifice for them. Yeah, for sure. Um, what do you what do you think about the ethics of, of this kind of time travel? You know, uh, changing something for the supposed good, but of course affecting many, many other people's lives. Well, I think Star Trek because the prime directive is such a big deal yeah. going back to the original series that you can't really argue that this was the right call for anyone to be making, to go back and, and meddling with the past. I, I think if I were in that situation, I would be on captain LaForge's side mm. and not on Harry and Chakotay's. But I also completely understand the, the ties that you have to your best friends and your family and you know, you do almost anything if you if you thought you could bring them back to life. I, I can I understand that motivation. I totally relate to it. Yeah. I think if this were just some kind of um, some intellectual exercise where we're talking about the ethics, then I would come down on on Jordy LaForge's side. Yeah, I think it's interesting too that Star Trek, you know, in its many years of existence, can explore different sides and facets to that question. You know, we go from, sorry, Edith Keeler, you got to go under that bus to uh, let's wipe out, you know, 15 years of history to bring this small ship of 150 people back. It's funny, too, because when we see the 29th century Federation time police, they're super cavalier about the kind of changes that they're making. Like they just pluck seven from the time stream to make some changes. And then she fails and dies. And they're like, oh, well, and then just grab her again from a different point. Uh, and that one time cop guy totally goes rogue and tries to just wipe out Voyager because it ruined his life. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. what kind of like screening do these guys go through to become time cops? <laughs> the the uh, temporal prime directive is right out the window in this episode. Of course, Harry and Chakotay aren't even Starfleet officers anymore. But but the Doctor is a part of this episode, and I was wondering, would an EMH be programmed to not violate the temporal prime directive? Yeah, that's interesting. That maybe part of his programming would would keep him from. I guess maybe you could argue that he he's a, a doctor and his, his his job is to save lives and yeah. they were attempting this harebrained scheme to to save a bunch of lives and, and and we've seen over and over again that the doctor like data is able to overcome to transcend their programming sure. in various ways and and grow over the course of the series. Sure. There's a brief moment in the episode uh, and it can't persist because we've got to let the episode progress for them to do this but he there's a part where the doctor says to Harry Hey, you got cra crazy survivor's guilt. I get it. But, you know, maybe we should just let it be. You know, we're messing with time. Maybe the best thing is to accept what happened. Uh, and, of course, you know, he's eventually convinced um, to their cause. And like we said, he um, he sacrifices himself at the end, which is really great. Um, it's kind of creepy, though. <laughs> like the, the, the key to success in this is a chip that Seven has uh, in her brain. So uh, we beam her, her dead body up to the Delta Flyer. And then later on, he's like digging around in her skull. It's, there's some gruesome imagery in this episode. It is gruesome. And they even show the kind of vivisectioned section of <laughs> yes. 
Evans cranium with some of the Borg implants still in it. And, and they, they don't really like linger on it or anything. It's, it's treated pretty matter it's, of fact. It's almost, yeah, it's almost grosser or, or like worse because it is so matter of fact. Um, yep. But you know, I mean, he's a, he's a doctor. I, I like the bit of continuity too, that they, they remembered uh, that she had an artificial eye. So, you know, the eye is fine. It hasn't uh, decomposed or anything like that, but now you've just got this half a skull with an eye sticking out of it. <laughs> yep. Definitely one of the more gruesome bits of bourbon era Star Trek. I macabre. Think. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about treason. Harry and Chakotay are wanted for treason and treason in the Federation is interesting. It doesn't get kicked around a lot as a nation, even a nation as accepting as the Federation, you're still going to have national interests and you don't want those subverted necessarily. But I would hope that treason is something that isn't tossed around that much. I don't think it's ever mentioned in uh, TNG. It might be mentioned in TOS. And then suddenly when Voyager comes around, you've got people mentioning treason a little more. Um, and so I just wonder what your thoughts would be about the Federation. You know, what kind of crime would the egalitarian federation say, well, that's treason. I mean, that's the worst thing that you can do. And of course, you know, we don't have the death penalty, but uh, you're going away for, for a while, pal. Yeah. Treason, I guess is a, is an interesting word to use. I mean, they, they stole the Delta flyer. I don't know if that would be considered treason. I mean, we saw Kirk and his friends steal the enterprise from space dock. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and they, and they had some, I mean, they kind of hand waved the, the consequences that they had to face as a result of that. Um, and going to the Genesis planet, which was supposed to be forbidden. Um, I don't, I don't know what exactly they did that would be considered treason. I guess messing with the, the timeline, but I guess we, we see a lot of characters do that as well. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I like that their justification is, you know, we did some crimes, but we're just going to wipe away those crimes from happening, which is kind of like saying, yeah, you saw me commit a murder, but if I kill you, nobody saw me commit the murder. Like the the moral uh, flexibility is at its height in this episode. Well, I'll tell you, I, and maybe this kind of speaks to that point that the the charges against Kim and Chakotay are sort of nebulous here. Yeah. There's a really cool scene where Chakotay is talking with Captain LaForge over the over the view screen, and it's like you know LaForge kind of communicates to them that this is my job. I don't really want to bring you in. I understand why you're doing this, but I'm under orders and I have to try to bring you in. And he kind of uh, you know he says uh, good luck, uh, Captain. Yeah. And there's like it's not personal between Chakotay and, and LaForge. It's just right. this is these this is their orders. Yeah. Well, I like how T says good luck, and LaForge says uh, good luck to you too. And it's like well you don't really want him to to have good luck do you it's sort of like when the server says enjoy your meal and you say you too (laughs) (laughs) i think i kind of took that line to mean like i hope you don't rewrite the timeline but i hope nothing really bad i don't wish you hope the best yeah the best outcome comes out of this yeah i can see that was there anything else that you uh wanted to say about the episode uh any any last thoughts that you had as we wrap up here well, I guess to maybe circle back to a point I made earlier about how this the, the future timeline in Timeless takes place in 2390, and mm-hmm. we see that Romulus gets destroyed in, in 2387. So I recently read the um, Una McCormick novel mm-hmm. for the, the Picard universe, The Last Best Hope. Yeah. And so I, I know that novels, you know, you've got to be careful. You don't you can't really accept them as canon until they're con- until you see what see it confirmed on screen. But yeah. in in that uh, book, we see that Picard, when he leaves the Enterprise, he convinces uh, LaForge to go to Utopia Planitia and start building the fleet of ships that's going to help with the evacuation of Romulus. Mm-hmm. And so if 
If that really happened, then the, the LaForge that we saw as captain of the Challenger is, is years after that, after we've already seen Utopia Punisha destroyed and we saw the mission to Romulus turned out disastrously. And so I just really like the idea that LaForge is able to bounce back from that, continue his career in Starfleet, and become the captain of a starship. I actually, I like that character arc. And if that were to be made canon, I would be really satisfied with that. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, it occurs to me now, too, that like I think Jody LaForge is kind of a Harry Kim-esque character himself. You know, he's also um, I mean, Harry Kim's parents weren't in Starfleet, but he's, you know, LaForge's parents were in Starfleet. And he's, uh, you know, this brilliant guy who sees this meteoric rise from like helmsman to, the, you know, the chief engineer of the flagship. And it's almost like what Harry Kim's career could have been, you know, if uh, if the whole caretaker incident hadn't happened. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I like that. But of course, uh, you know, all these people's and all these characters' stories uh, have been expanded upon in tie-in media. So if you're looking to find out what happens when they get back, there are plenty of Kirsten Beyer novels for you to read. Yep. Uh, in oh, I agree. Yeah. Well, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Definitely Picard, without hesitation. I think because... Star Trek The Next Generation was the series that got me into Star Trek. Mm. I love that cast. I love those characters. It was such a thrill to see Picard back on the screen for a whole other uh, series just this year. Um, and, and I think Picard, uh, as a character, he has such high standards for himself and those around him that he kind of lifts the people around him up to his level. Yeah. That's, there's, there's an aspirational quality to Jean-Luc Picard. And I've always tried to, I try to live up to those same sort of standards. I, I don't always, but uh, I think that's what I love about Captain Picard is that he, he makes people around him better, uh, even in the real world. Yeah, certainly. Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Uh, I've always wanted to be a, a flight controller, a helmsman. Yeah, I think it'd be cool to be like a, a hotshot pirate pilot, like a, um, like Paris, like Tom Paris. Yeah, there's definitely a different sort. I mean, I suppose hotshot pilots are hotshot pilots in any era, but going from you know grabbing the the stick, you know, and like doing barrel rolls and stuff like that to now the person with the best words per minute, I guess, is the best pilot, you know, because you're using, <laughs> you know, little buttons and beep, 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 beep and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I'd be interested someday for them to really explain how, uh, you know, these these tight you know maneuvers work using like a, a keyboard or, or whatever it is. Of course, you know, in, in uh, Star Trek Insurrection, we have the uh, get out the joystick. This is going to be a, an important maneuver here, uh, but we never see that anywhere else in the franchise. They should do a short track that's all about the helmsman of a starship giving like a brief flight control lesson. I would love that. Or like a like a whiplash style uh, thing where the guy just keeps practicing and his fingers are all uh, bruised and uh, he's got calluses. and He's like, I got to be I got to be the best pilot. I got to keep working these fingers. I'm obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ensign Love, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation and they can at at EIST pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page. Where can people find you online? Yeah, I'm at uh, I'm on Twitter as well, pretty active, talking about Star Trek and tabletop role-playing games as well. It's uh, at Trek underscore Lug, L-U-G. Trek Lug. And uh, I know that, you know, uh, the quarantine has um, uh, canceled a lot of your uh, music dates, but do you have any upcoming dates or events that you want to share with the audience? 
Um, you know, I would just if people are interested in Star Trek Adventures, the role playing game, check out my YouTube page. I'm running games on that regularly. Um, I also, if you, um, I've got a, a Facebook music page as well, Fred Love Music. Uh, I'm doing live stream concerts every Saturday afternoon Central Time. Okay. Uh, I do like um, like old school country music and Americana sure. kind of stuff. So if that's if that's of interest to you, then please uh, feel free to stop on by. Yeah, check that out. Thanks again for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? If we're the hosts of Backtracking, I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You, go f*** yourself.